Good evening. Time to get started tonight. If you would, please take out a songbook and turn to number 643. 643 will be our first song tonight. The Lord my shepherd Ninety-seven. One ninety-seven. After the song, we led in our opening prayer. sing songs of praise to you, dear Heavenly Father. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that as we enter into our worship service that you would help each of us to cast out the thoughts of the, of the world, of our jobs, of school, of, of everything, dear Heavenly Father, and focus 
on the message that's brought to us tonight. Help us, dear Lord, to apply that message to our, our lives. Dear Lord, I pray for those that are ill. I pray that you would be with them, be with the doctors that are taking care of them, dear Lord. Pray for those, dear Heavenly Father, that are traveling and pray that they might have a safe return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you'd like to mark the song of invitation, it's going to be number 255, 255. And then our song before the lesson will be number 378. If you would please stand with me and remain standing for the scripture reading to follow. 378. Just a few more days to be filled with praise and to tell the original story. Then when my life falls and my Savior calls, I shall go to Him in glory. I'll change my cross for a starry ground where the days swing outward ever. chapter verses 1 through 14. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children Walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of my charity before the church. 
whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not write with ink and pen, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be unto thee. Our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. Be seated, please. Well, I'm always happy to be with you, and I'm very grateful for the privilege that is afforded to me once again, and I, I'm very happy that everyone is with us, and, and uh, those who are online or following along, we're always very appreciative of you and your interest in our worship service and Bible studies, and so we're thankful for you. And uh, we continue tonight the study of our one-chapter books, we come to Third John. I selected this idea because I thought these are books of the Bible that we seldom study, but yet they're so powerful and so important books, and so I sort of address these kind of lessons as a seminar, a Sunday night seminar, because it's part of a sermon, but it's also part of a lecture because there's a lot of background material that needs to be studied and understood so that we can get the most out of the context of the passage that we're studying at the time. We're studying Third John, and you can see from the graphic that I have before you that John is writing about an encourager. He's writing about an egotist, and he's writing about an example. And we'll look at these three individuals tonight. You'll notice in the bulletin you have an outline, front and back page, that'll help you follow along with the thoughts and the sentiments that are expressed in this book. And you might be able to make notes along the line and, and may be able to record some of these points as they come up. So we'll look and follow John's outline for us, Gaius, verses 1 through 8. Then we'll look at Demetrius, verses 9 through 10, who is a dictator. And we'll look at Demetrius, verse 11 and 12. And then he has a conclusion for us in verses 13 and 14. We'll try to be just as succinct as we possibly can in discussing these important matters and the proper application for ourselves. It is the shortest of the New Testament books in the Greek New Testament. And when you read, and if you read it carefully, you're going to think to yourself, as I did, well, things have not changed very much. We still have problems with regard to some people and certain ones. One of the words that comes up repeatedly in this book is the word testimony. It's what I have in my translation. You might have record, or you might have another word, something like that, reputation, report, is a good uh, way to translate that. For example, in verse 3, 
He says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. And also in verse 6, you have the passage which says, Who testified to you? Love before the church. And then you also have it found again in verse 12, where it says, Demetrius has received a good testimony. So that word keeps coming up and coming up. And it certainly is a clue word which helps us understand something of the text that's being given to us. He's talking about living the truth. He's talking about understanding the truth and in turn living it day by day. It's an important matter because a record is a reputation of what we have. And you have a good reputation, you can have a bad reputation. He certainly is saying that uh, these men, two of them, certainly have a good reputation. But there's one whose reputation is negligible and needs to be corrected. The book primarily is written to Gaius. But this also occurs, these two men, one is Diotrephes and the other is the man by the name of Demetrius, and we will study them as we go along. So let's look at our first point that John gives us, and that is verses 1 through 8, and that is the man Gaius. And he loves Gaius. That's very obvious from the text. And you can see how he uses the word beloved several times. It's in verse 1 and verse 2. The elder to the beloved Gaius, verse 2, beloved, I pray that all things go well with you. Again, it's in verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. And it's also found for us in verse 11. And beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. So it's certainly a passage in a book that talks about John's love for his people, for the people that is writing, that he certainly loves Gaius. Gaius is a wonderful man, a wonderful Christian man, and man who really is given to hospitality, as we'll learn in just a moment. Verse 2 is an interesting verse to me. I remember the first time I gave verse 2 serious consideration. A preacher wrote to me a nice note, and he he signed his name, and at the bottom of the, his name he put Third John 2. And I scratched my head, and I thought, well, I ought to be a little more familiar with that. And so I went to Third John 2, and I noticed this beautiful verse, which I think is an unusual one and deserves explanation. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And so this friend that was writing me the note was asking for, hoping that I would have good health and that my soul would continue to prosper and grow spiritually as well. I believe that this is more than just a formal greeting. You know, you might write a letter, send a note to Mr. Jones. Dear Mr. Jones, I hope you're doing well. Whether we know Mr. Jones or not, sometimes we'll put that in the front of the letter as a formal greeting. But I don't think you have this as a formal greeting. I think he knows Gaius personally, and he's writing about Gaius, and he says, I hope you do well with your health, and I hope your soul prospers as well. It could be that Gaius has experienced poor health. I don't know. I can't say that. Maybe that's why he has referenced it this way in verse 2, that Gaius was a man who's been involved with poor health. But it was certainly, if that's the case, it'd certainly be true that you could have poor physical health and still have growing spiritual health. And that is what Paul said for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Though our outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. The fact of the matter is, with regard to health, and with regard to spiritual health, it all takes the same thing, doesn't it? Whether it's physical or spiritual. Physical health is going to take um, the proper diet. You've got to have the right nutrition. You've got to have the right kind of exercise. You've got to have a clean environment. 
keeping yourself clean, and you've got to have the proper rest at the proper time. And that really is the way it is with regard to spiritual health as well, isn't it? You're going to have to have the proper diet. The proper diet, of course, is the Word of God. And we're going to have to keep ourselves pure and keep ourselves clean. And that's what the Bible is emphasizing all the way through the pages of the New Testament. And I turn for our admonition, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, as Paul is making the very point about keeping ourselves pure. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's another great passage that admonishes us to live a holy life, a clean, pure life. And that is what he's emphasizing here. It's found for us, 1 Peter chapter 1. And it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. A whole paragraph there is a wonderful matter. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, and the passage that I have is verse 4 in mine. And he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And his point is that we've got to remain pure as children of God. And we cannot contaminate ourselves in the ways of this world and become defiled spiritually because of them. And so John writes to Gaius. He says, Gaius, I hope that your health continues to do well, just as your soul does well. Now, your prosperity preachers come along, and they'll take a passage like that, and they'll say, you see there, if you're doing what God says do, then you're going to have great health too. That's not necessarily what he's saying. He's asking him and hoping for him to have good health. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Did we not this evening pray for those who are in poor health? And well, we should, as those among us covet our prayers, and we should sincerely pray for them that they do grow in health and improve in their health and that they be restored to their home and be restored to their families and their loved ones. That's what we want. But sometimes we don't have good health, but we can still have spiritual health. We can grow spiritually, and that's what he was saying here about Gaius. I hope your health continues to go well. Verse 2, just as you prosper spiritually, because you're a man who knows God's Word, you're a man who loves God's Word, and you live God's Word. That's the kind of man that Gaius was. Gaius was an obedient individual. He studied the Word of God, and that is what causes our spirits, our souls to prosper when we apply that to our lives. It reminds me of Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, you'll probably turn to that and you're familiar with it. He's comparing the righteous with the wicked, and the righteous is the individual who focuses on the Word of God. The wicked is the individual who does not. He says in Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Now notice how he starts off in a negative fashion. He says, they don't, A blessed man doesn't take wicked advice, the counsel of the wicked. This is the way of a righteous individual. He is the one who does not follow the example of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. He does not join in with those who make sport of or make light of God Almighty. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
In other words, that's his delight. He enjoys it. He wants to study it. And he thinks about it. He meditates upon it. By meditating, he's thinking about, how does that apply to me? How important is that passage for me? And he's saying, we think about it as a righteous person. We're in turn focusing on it and meditating upon it. And then he tries to describe the righteous individual, and I'll just stop our discussion at verse 3, because that's the kind of point that we're making out of 3 John 2. And that is the idea he's a tree, but he's not just any kind of tree, and he's not just planted at any particular place. He's a special tree, and he's planted in a special place. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Well, he's talking about a righteous man here, and notice the focus that's given the righteous man on the Word of God and implying that to his life. He's a very productive man spiritually. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He's thinking about it. That's the kind of man we have here. Third John, verse 2, the man's name is Gaius, and he's a man who loves the Lord, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He says, now, you have a great testimony. This great testimony is the fact that you've been obedient to the Word of God and you're walking in the truth. But you also have a very practical side about you. You're helping other peoples. You see, he's like that, that tree that's planted by the rivers of waters and giveth forth fruit in all of its season in Psalm verse 1. He's a helper. He tells us in verse 5 through 8, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Let me pause for a minute and let's see what he's talking about here. He says, you have the reputation of helping people along the way. I get the idea as I read through Third John that John's talking about the traveler who may be passing through to preach the gospel or the traveler who's passing through to teach. It might be a teacher that he's helping. You see, I don't have any indication in this chapter that John, that Gaius is a preacher. And I don't have any indication in this chapter that Gaius is a teacher. But I do have every indication in the chapter that Gaius is a helper. He's an encourager. And as people pass along the way, he's there helping them showing hospitality to them. And he says, the church knows that, and you have such a good reputation for helping people along the way. Brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, why well, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. I'll spend another moment about that wonderful statement regarding Gaius and his encouragement of those and his hospitality. Now, I must offer a warning here with regard to the matter. Because John has warned us in 2 John about having no fellowship with those who hold to error. And that was 2 John verses 7 through 11. We're not to have fellowship with that. We're not to join in hands with them. We're not to give the appearance that we're supporting error. The error that John had in mind in 2 John was this idea that Jesus had not come in the flesh. It was a heresy with regard to the nature of Christ. And he's speaking out vividly, graphically, 
about that particular matter. Here in 3 John, he's encouraging Gaius. You are a wonderful encourager because people come along and you help them, you give them hospitality, while you even help them along their way. And it's something, it's a wonderful way, it's a wonderful thing that you're able to do that and that you do. Now you see, Christianity is more than just giving lip service to Christ. Christianity is manifested in the things that we say and the things that we do. In fact, our faith is exhibited in such a fashion. Shouldn't we turn to James chapter 2 and look at this wonderful passage at about verse 14 through 16? As James brings this very point up, by means of application, James, James is teaching us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now he's talking about works of righteousness, and he's talking about works whereby we're able to help people along the way with regard to the necessities of life. This is what New Testament Christianity does. This is what it is. Gaius is a wonderful example of that. Strangers come along the way. I get the idea again as probably teachers of the gospel, preachers of the gospel. Gaius is one to show hospitality to them, to feed them, to house them, and even give them some support. It may be that Gaius is wealthy enough to do that particular matter. First John brings this matter up, doesn't he? In 1 John chapter 3, and the passage is about verse 16, and it's certainly one that we want to remember with regard to us being the kind of encouragers we really need to be. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, I see John being very consistent with what he's teaching, and that is with Gaius. He's saying, you've done that. You've been the kind of Christian man that helped in all these particular regards. As people would come along the way, you helped them. And even though you didn't know them, still they were people who in turn needed help and you provided it. Now I have to ask the question. What motivated him to do that? Uh, what motiv motivated Gaius to be the encourager that he was, the hospitable type of person that he was? Well, I think that's the point that he's getting, giving for us in verse 6. One of the reasons is it honors God in doing so. Who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of of God. When one helps another along the way and is involved in these elements and aspects of charitable kindness for those who are in need, it is honoring God. And we, more, we no more become more like God than when we help others who are in need. That is the difference between us and those who are outside in the world. They will not help. We help because we want to be more like God. It's worthy of God. It honors God when we help others who are in need. I'm in verse 7 now, and I'm trying to understand what motivated Gaius to be such an encouraging fellow. 
I'm trying to understand that in verse 7. He is an encouragement, though, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Now, that's an amazing point, I think, right there in verse 7. The name that he's talking about is the name of Christ. And they have gone out preaching and teaching the gospel in the name of Christ. And notice what? They didn't accept anything from the Gentiles. I suppose they could have, but they didn't. Boy, that's a different attitude than today. Because your television preachers and teachers get on there and they're begging for money right and left. They want more and more. They're happy to take your money. But here, these travelers preaching the gospel in the first century, he says... Now, they didn't take any money for their preaching from the Gentiles. They were preaching in the name, but you helped them, and you had the ability. He's such an encourager. Why did he do it? He did it, verse 8, because it was a matter of obedience. Therefore, we ought not to support people like these, or we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You might want to underline that word, fellow worker. He's a joint worker. He's a participant in this matter of preaching and teaching the truth. And he furthers the truth alone. He's a joint worker, an encourager, a participant, one who's involved in the matter. Fighting against apostasy, 2 John. Refusing to have fellowship with the false teacher, 2 John 7-11. through 11. Encouraging those and promoting the truth that are going along the way. Third John, the wonderful example of Gaius, spiritually healthy. Hopefully he has health, physical health, obedient to the Word, and he's certainly showing the support that is to be given to gospel preachers. What a glowing example and encourager. Oh, we need more people like Gaius. Now we got the other side of the coin. We're going to turn this coin over and look at the other side, and we're going to look at a man by the name of Diotrephes. Diotrephes was just the opposite. In this particular regard, we look at Diotrephes in verse 9. I have written concerning to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. I cannot imagine that. Diotrephes doesn't want to listen to the preaching and the teaching of John. Diotrephes doesn't believe in that. He doesn't accept John. Diotrephes is a man who loves the preeminence. He wants to be the person in charge. And I guess sometimes when people drift away from the Word of God and they're not really closely related to it, they're not studying it carefully like they should, Sometimes church bosses do arise, but it's certainly not the ideal. It's not what God intended. In Matthew chapter 18, in the beginning at about verse 1, you have a regular quarrel with regard to the disciples. And you know what they're quarreling about? They're quarreling about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Matthew 18 and 1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is not the only time that the Lord will have to deal with these ambitious ladder climbers in the spiritual kingdom of God. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making it clear this is not like it's going to be in some kind of Roman 
official's office. It's not going to be like that with regard to the kingdom of heaven. And he teaches that particular point by emphasizing humility. And who is the one that we are to follow with regard to this example of humility? Oh, you know the answer to that. It's in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at about verse 7. Jesus Christ the righteous, the perfect example of humility, the one to follow. He wasn't the kind that would try to lord it over other people. He was God in the flesh. He knew exactly what to say and how to say it. He knew to say it in a way that it would be remembered by people for generations and generations recorded for us in the Scripture. But when you come to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, you have, in my view, one of the most profound passages of all the Bible. And you see how that Jesus, what he gave up. This word emptied that I'm about to read comes from a special Greek word. The scholars argue and fuss about this word over and over. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, He being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And when I read this paragraph, I just can't stop. I've got to read the next verse or two. It's such a powerful passage of Scripture. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's the example of the one to follow. Humility, doing the will of God, perfectly so. No, there's no room for church bosses. There's no room for diatrophies, for people like that who want to have the preeminence. He didn't want to give Christ the preeminence. Paul said Christ deserves the preeminence. That's Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. But no, Diotrephes wanted the preeminence all to himself. He wanted to be the one that would decide matters and have everything go his own way. There's no room in the body of Christ for a Diotrephes like that. He wouldn't even accept John. He wouldn't accept the associates of John. Verse 9, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring, bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and put them out of the church. This is amazing to me. You mean to tell me you would not sit at the feet of John the Apostle? You wouldn't sit at the feet of John? who was with the Lord on that great day of transfiguration where he heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John, whereby he would say, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother from the cross. You won't accept John. I just can't imagine it. But here's a man that's filled with such a self-centered, self-glorifying attitude. It's obvious John didn't go along with the things Diotrephes wanted to go along with. If you could imagine if he would have just sat at the feet of John, the lessons he could have learned. But what is he going to hear? He's going to hear John's rebuke. 
John says he tells some terrible things about us. He will not accept us. He will not accept my associates. See, it's guilt by association with regard to Diotrephes. He goes along with John, therefore I can't have anything to do with him. Why would a man be that way? Why would a man be so egotistical? Why would a man be filled with this self-glorification that he has to have everything his own way? Everything has to be done his own way. The best answer I have for that is the matter of pride. He's filled with pride. And if you don't go along with Diotrephes, then you're not going to go along. In fact, Diotrephes is the kind of man that he'd even exclude people from the church. Not content with what others would say and do and try to do. He doesn't want to have a helpful, hospitable heart about him. Now, if you notice that, I'm going to pick that point up as I'm working my way through this text in verse 10. He's talking wicked nonsense against us, John said, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. Now, we just read about a man who opened up his home and his heart to travelers and to strangers and was so hospitable to them. And we learned about Gaius, the encourager. But here's a man who refuses to help the traveler. He refuses to help his brother. He won't have anything to do with him. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Can you imagine the problem that somebody like that can actually cause wanting to have the preeminence, wanting to have everything his own particular way. It's not going to work and still be pleasing in the sight of God. Now, we have to follow God's divine plan to be pleasing to God. That divine plan about the organization of the church, you know well. It's found for us. In uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 is a good place to go. If you're looking for the organization of the church and how the church is to be organized, well, then that's a good place to find it. And um, as Paul uh, talks about that, he talks about the saints, he talks about the evangelists, he talks about the deacons, and he talks about the overseers. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So you have the evangelists like Paul and Timothy who are preaching and teaching. And then you have the saints, the members of the congregation. And then you have the overseers, a word which is analogous to and synonymous with the word bishop or elder. And then you have deacons, given the responsibility of specific jobs and chores to be done with regard to the efficient running of the work of the Lord's church. Elders decide in matters of expediency. They make decisions. You know, you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you go to Titus chapter 1, and you see a list of divine qualifications for elders. And you look out among yourselves and you see, well, this one meets those qualifications. He's a reasonable man. He's a godly man. He has a wonderful family, and we have such respect and consideration for him. We're going to put him up as an elder and the congregation accepts him as an elder to make decisions in matters of expediency. Elders do not come up with new doctrine. Elders understand what is the most expedient method to accomplish the work of the church. Deacons help them along the way. 
Now, in that brief discussion which I gave you, there's nothing said about a church boss. There's nothing said in God's divine plan about a diatrophies. These men have to love each other, and they love the church, and they do. And these deacons love each other, and they love the church, and they want the best for the church. They certainly do. But not a diatrophies. He's an egotist. He's a person that has to have everything his own way, and that's amazing to me. Uh, as I'm working my way through this portion of the text, and I want to be as precise as I can and cover as much as I can, I need to say this, that there are instructions in the New Testament about church discipline, and those instructions need to be respected. But Diotrephes didn't do that. Diotrephes was disciplining and probably withdrawing fellowship from people who just simply did not agree with him. He was using this matter of withdrawal and fellowship as a weapon, as a tyrant. It wasn't as a means of saving a soul and getting them to repent, which is the purpose of the matter in the beginning. He was using this as a means of trying to get things done his way, and anyone who didn't go his way would be out. That's sad. And I'm fearful that I have heard of this. I've never experienced it. I'm fearful that I've heard of things like that happening where it was used more as a means of a weapon rather than soul-saving as it was intended. Those passages about discipline need to be respected, but it's never to be used as a weapon against people. It's to be used out of love to help them come back and repent of their sin and be faithful once again because we love them and we want them to receive eternal life as God wants all of us to do. I get the idea John is saying, don't believe everything you hear from Diotrephes. I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome brothers, verse 10. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you read. You know, sometimes people are like blotters. They soak it all up, but they get it all backwards. And that's the way some people are. The remedy for that is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. And then this wonderful passage, Ephesians chapter 4, talks about that important matter as well. Well, I want to talk now about another lovely character, and his name is Demetrius. I wish I knew more about Demetrius. He's the fellow, the third one, and he's the example. The word exemplar means ideal, the one to look toward. He says in this passage, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. We know this guy. He, he's a loving, faithful Christian. He's an individual who really is a wonderful example to follow, and we know him. Sometimes there are people that are just do so well with regard to living the Christian life that they can say, follow my example insofar as I'm following the Word of God. Paul did that. It's in Philippians chapter 3 and in verse 17. 
And there in that particular passage, he makes the point, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Can you say that? I think that's an amazing statement. Paul could say it in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. There's the exemplar. He lives the life Christ taught us to live, and that life ought to truly be followed. He says it again. This time, if I can find it quickly, it's in chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there he says in verse 1, I find this amazing. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the ticket where that individual has such a godly attitude, manner, and behavior that we look to that individual as an example to follow. I believe that's the kind of example that elders have. Elders are men who stand before the congregation, and little Johnny and little Susie look up to these elders, and mom and dad say and whisper in their ear, Now, son, he's an elder. You want to be like him when you grow up. He has responsibility for the souls of the congregation. You look at him and how he lives. That's an elder. He has great responsibility. And then little Johnny, one day, by following that instruction, might become an elder himself and so qualify himself to do that. What a wonderful work it is to be an elder of the church of the living God. I cannot find or think of any work more satisfying, unless it's preaching the gospel, than to be an elder of the congregation, to love the people and have the people's respect and lead them in the pathway of righteousness. Did not the Hebrew writer say in Hebrews 10 and 24, consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works? That's the kind of man Demetrius was. There's a good report out there on Demetrius. He's a man who loves other people. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, and also, we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is not a perfect individual, but Demetrius is a consistent individual. He's living the Christian life consistently, day by day, studying God's Word, and in turn, encouraging other people to do the same. Well, I want to look just a little bit at the conclusion here. I have another verse or two, 13, 14, and 15, and there's a phrase or two in these verses we want to study. We want to be sure that we understand them. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. You know, it's kind of a modern way of translating that. He didn't have a pen like we think of. He had a quill. He had a stylus, and he had a special kind of ink, of course, that he would use. The ink that he would use is not the kind of ink that we have, but he had a more crude type of ink made out of tree bark and lamp black and things of that sort, and it was a metallic type of paint. And when he st sticks the stylus, the sharp pointed stick, into that vial of metallic paint, he's drawing or painting on the vellum manuscript the message that he wants them to read. I am going to come and I'm going to speak to you personally because there are some things that just have to be dealt with on a personal basis. Now, I'd like to write about these other matters as well, but I need to come, and I need to come and discuss these matters with you personally. I hope to see you soon, 
and we will talk. How? Face to face. You get the idea he's going to deal with Demetrius, and he's going to expect, and I believe he should, that Gaius and, and Demetrius would stand up for him. He's going to deal with Diotrephes, I should say, and that Demetrius and Gaius would stand up right with him as he speaks face to face to this person who has assumed too much authority. Here's a lovely verse in verse 15. Peace be to you. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're studying Hebrew or studying Greek. That word peace comes up. And it means a type of um, satisfaction. That one receives a satisfaction with regard to his obedient faith in Christ. Let there be peace of mind and peace of heart. It's a troubling time, troubling days in which we live. But peace certainly is something that we can have in Christ. Now, I think that's the message there of Philippians chapter 4. That's where the resource for peace comes from. Philippians 4, 6, 7, 13, and 19. And I love to study passages with you like that. But I got another word here that I want to emphasize. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Now, he says friends. You know, if this Apostle Paul writing this in the last chapter, chapter 16, the book of Romans, you know what he'd do? He'd list all those friends. He'd tell us about this one and what they did. And he'd tell us about that one and what they did and how they helped him and how they furthered the gospel of Christ. And he would give a list of his friends. He does that in Romans. He does it in Colossians, Ephesians. Why, when he talks in Philemon, you and I studied that book together on Sunday night why he talks about the close relationship between him and Philemon and Onesimus and those particular matters. But all John says is the friends. But it's a wonderful thing to have. You know, somebody said one time, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a million dollars or would you rather have a million friends? And I think if you're thinking rationally, you'd rather have a million friends. And I think that the friends that he has reference to are people who surely will give them encouragement. Let me see if I can find a passage to show how that is the case. I'm thinking about Acts chapter 28. Paul has been arrested. Paul is going to prison. He goes to prison in Rome. He's in prison at Caesarea two years, and he goes from there, he appeals to Caesar, and he goes to Rome. And quite a story that is, the shipwreck and all of the trouble that he faced, and yet he manages to get to Rome. And when Paul gets to Rome, Notice what happens, verse 14. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. The point that I'm trying to see here in this particular passage is look at the benefit the Christian friends were to Paul. Why, when he got to Rome and he saw these friends who came out to greet him, these friends who were there with him, why, he thanked God and, and took courage over the fact that these Christian friends were there to help him. Now, John in Third John is trying to say, we're going to come. And we're going to be with you face to face along with the friends. Friends are wonderful things to have. 
true friends, friends that will help you and encourage you. And even when you're wrong, friends that will tell you and help you get out of the wrong because they're good Christian friends. And we ought to be thankful for them. And I believe that when John writes this passage by inspiration, that word friends meant a lot to the people who received this letter, 3 John. He's coming. And friends are supporting us and encouraging us. What a wonderful book 3 John really is. I thought about taking some time and maybe analyzing and comparing 3 John with 2 John. But these particular matters are sufficient for us to understand the great purpose of the book. And that is to encourage us to be the kind of people God wants us to be in the church of the living God. 2 John was a book that was emphasizing, be careful of what's being said on the outside because they're saying some bad things about Jesus that's just not true. Don't have anything to do with them on the outside. Third John saying, be careful what you hear on the inside by people like Diotrephes who's saying things that are just not true. Don't believe everything you hear. I'm coming personally to straighten this matter out. It's a powerful book, and I hope you grow to love it just as I do. If you're here tonight and never obeyed the gospel, I encourage you to do that tonight. As I always do, I encourage